You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, literature enthusiast and I guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we continuing on this week? This week, we're going to be returning to an author that we have talked about on the podcast before that we started this book last month. We are going to be finishing Guzel Yechina's Evolga Tale. It is parts three through five of the book titled The Pupil, The Son, and The Children, respectively. Mm-hmm. And it's time for us to talk about fairy tales. So I'm, I, it's probably good that we did this with Master and Margarita, a lot of overlap, uh, as well as uh, Joseph Stalin playing pool with Hitler. It's not a joke. Okay, so I said last time when we were talking about it that I didn't really need the large-scale political whatever in the book. Right. This scene was really funny. <laughs> not from like a literary perspective or literary level, just uh, me reading and I thought it was funny. Right. I Well, I think it's impossible to not... Have the moment of like, wait, is Stalin playing pool with Hitler? They're not using, you know, you've got the leader in the footer, um, and they're trash talking each other as they play pool, which, if I understood this correctly, is a metaphor for how World War II is going. Um, so I don't know what to do with that other than, <laughs> I mean, here's what I'll say I've never seen it done before. Should it have been done? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we'll talk about that in, in, Due time. Is there anything you want to cover before we talk about what what finishes out the book? I just want to dive into this one. I will say, personally, it probably wasn't my favorite book of the year. That being said, a lot of the action did still grip me and I still wanted to finish it. It was kind of a weird effect reading this one. Right. It. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like, speak badly of the book, but I will say there are parts where I was kind of I was feeling like, oh, man. This is kind of rough. And then there were parts where I've like found the same kind of magic I found in Zulika, um, where you yes. feel this character. Yeah, where you're like, I see why, you know, I'm here. But we'll we'll talk me, more about it. For me, it wasn't the characters. There was there was some really sparkling points, I thought, on, on the nature description, actually, that I really enjoyed. And there were some really high points of her prose in the second half of the book. However, my complaints about the first part that we talked about were not really resolved by part two. I was kind of hoping... For something different and i'm kind of trying to weigh like do i was it was it a me issue that i just want it to be something a little different and i don't i don't want to be that kind of reviewer you know that's that's the worst when you are just you just want something that's different yeah well we'll untangle that as we go all right okay uh, i think before we get into it we do have to cop that we were wrong with the hoffman uh intro outro we oh did... we could not have been further from the truth <laughs> so there you go. That's our mea couple on that one. So I guess I don't know who we owe money to, but whoever it is, uh, just go ahead and email us your claim. Um, <laughs> we may or may not respond. Uh, we won't. <laughs> so, OK, we're going to cover like a good uh, 10 years here. So uh, bear with us as we, we have a very high level description here. So as as we left off last time, Bach now goes to Kudanthal pretty regularly in the early years of the Soviet Union and especially the early years of the German Socialist Republic to write fairy tales for Bach, excuse me, for Hoffman. And this relationship continues, and, and Hoffman not only is using this material locally, but he's also mailing it into a, um, a larger uh, newspaper in order to have them publish it under the name of the journalist Hobach. They, they keep trying to hire him, but he never responds to that. He simply sends those stories in. Uh, of course, Hoffman, or excuse me, Bach writes it, and then Hoffman goes in and gives it a kind of moral at the end, wraps it all up in that nice socialist tale. And everything goes pretty well for a while. Like people love the tales. Literally, people gather in the square to read them. Things are going great in the early Republic. Except there's this weird thing that Bach starts to notice happening, which is, in one way or another, all his stories start to come true. He writes the stories about dwarves coming to some side of land, and, and soon enough, small tractors begin to be brought to Dadenthal, titled or, or named Dwarf Tractors. In one way or another... His stories that he writes start to come true, loosely speaking. And this kind of grips him with a sense of fear 
once those well i mean at first it's it's great uh he writes all these things about you know things going well and they have this great year the year he calls it the year of unprecedented uh harvest right and then right he's writing fairy tales so not everything is great not everything ends great for everyone in fairy tales and so bad things start happening to people and this instills in bach a sense of fear and he starts writing only good fairy tales to um hoffman's uh uh not delight the opposite to his uh kind of like why are you writing this this is not good writing what are you doing you're practically a wrecker at this point um but regardless of what bach writes all the things seem to improve for a while suddenly they take a a pretty steep downturn and things start going worse and worse and at the same time we also briefly diverge into stalin coming and uh now as the we're getting to the 30s and the situation starts to uh become more i'll say lightly um conflictual between the Soviet Union and uh, the now uh, emerging, yeah, everyone, but especially the emerging Nazi party in Germany, um, and also the years of Yezhev Shina, the, um, the years of uh, the other you know, purges, things start to change your character a little bit. So, I mean, how much you read into Hoffman actually having control over, I mean, excuse me, Bach having control over this, um, maybe we can get into that. But that continues it until the point where everything has gotten so has come to loggerheads enough that you basically have a division. You've got these fearful parents, all these this old guard of the village, and the children who are mostly devotees of of Hoffman, more or less. And um, things have gotten to a point where they, those two groups basically don't interact at all. And one day, um, the older generation come to basically get rid of Hoffman. And even trample over their own children as they do so. This this gar- vanguard of children protecting Hoffman as he hides in the church. Uh, as the people try to set it alight, they end up trampling them over, taking some hostage. And uh, Hoffman eventually uh, takes off all his clothing and begins to walk out into uh, into the forests as a sort of admission of failure. The people bar his way, and without resistance, without protest, he uh, goes where they guide him and uh, walks into the river and without so much as bubbles left behind in the trail, Hoffman disappears from our narrative. R.I.P. Hoffa, you were a real one. <laughs> Actually, he, I don't, I don't think he was that bad. No, I mean, I, I think it. I mean, the the death of Hoffman's kind of the death of the dream locally. I mean, you got like the broader, you know, changes that are being made on on the years of Yeshivshina, but here it wasn't the it wasn't the capital I idea, you know, changing things. It's the local people unable to accept change for better or for worse i think at worst often kind of like a middling bureaucrat right at best he's just kind of an idealist right yeah yeah, yeah. so we'll come back to hoffman he not entirely gone yeah, mostly gone but from there he's onward mostly gone. <laughs> <laughs> he's mostly gone it gets a little cameo um from there onward bach decides it's time to go i can't live in this town anymore and he takes Antia and he flees but as he's going to Moscow to try to escape to Germany, you know, Antia is totally overwhelmed with uh, people. I mean, keep in mind, she's been kept in a house for, I don't, I don't know how old she is, probably like five or six at this point. She doesn't know how to speak. She's been kept in a house her whole life. I don't think she's ever seen anyone but Bach. So she's like freaking out the whole time, understandably, uh, such that it basically forces Bach to return to the homestead. And uh, there at the homestead, they find uh, a small, small boy, an intruder, and uh, after capturing, you know, capturing this intruder of two or three days of, you know, the first person kind of breaking in and stealing from them, uh, they realize that it's it's not a full grown, uh, like, a, a thief or, you know, robber or whatever. It's just a nine year old boy who's trying to find food, a nine year old um, Kyrgyz boy who uh, has a gift for languages as he's held down in a net. He's cursing at them in Kyrgyz and uh, I think Bashkir and Russian, even not even a little bit in German that much but I think he's, he's the best character personally right <laughs> yeah no I, I i i would agree uh we'll talk more about that once in a little bit but so they have this they, eventually bach kind of decides and then from this perspective this part of the book suddenly switches over to this boy's perspective his name he goes by the name vaska vaska is simply the most recent name he's taken on here um as a, as a per- perpetual wanderer at the age of nine uh he has had many names lived many lives and lived with many people but Despite having conflict with Bach and at some points trying to run away and um, Bach trying to withhold food from him and hide things from him, they kind of have this uneasy uh, life begin to form as he 
kind of insists on staying because it's warm and it's winter and he doesn't have anywhere else to go. But slowly, they kind of start winning each other over. I don't know if that's exactly true, but they start coming to an agreement, an unspoken one of sorts. You know, keep in mind, Bach still does not speak at all. Um, and even if he could, uh, Vaska doesn't speak any German, or he speaks very little German. Um, so they, they couldn't really talk much. And uh, Bach starts to play records. He starts to play um, poets. I, I know Goethe, there's another poet he mentions. But this, even though... Uh, Vaska doesn't know what's un- understand what's going on, doesn't understand the words, he's entranced by it. And in turn, Vaska is something new, Vaska is something interesting, so Antia is kind of obsessed with him just because he can speak, he can do all these funny things, and they start to develop this relationship. Um, more or less to Bach's chagrin, but he accepts it over time. And uh, that is more or less how the next four years pass um, with a, a brief interlude where uh, Vaska decides that he's going to go and he leaves for a summer, and that leads to a whole... Uh, Udo Grimm, Carla <laughs> uh, situation, Clara, excuse me, Clara situation where uh, Antia keeps trying to run away and uh, Bach literally locks her into the house before deciding that he can't control her. Anyway, so Vasco returns, they spend the next four years together and things go fine until, um, well, more or less fine, until eventually uh, a, a guy comes by being like, hey, I'm, you know, here to do the census or whatever. And he notices the kids and is like, wait a minute, do you just keep kids out here? In a more Soviet manner you, than I'm conveying, and here you understand. But uh, <laughs> he's like, "Yeah, they gotta, they gotta go back to school. I gotta take him with me." Um, and so Antia and Vaska, young, are pretty excited to buy this, and they jump in the boat and go, leaving Bach in this kind of strange place uh, where he's completely alone. After some time alone, he goes to town, Gnadenthal, and finds them in a, a children's home, kind of intent on taking them back. But what he finds is that uh, he only finds them in a play acting out his play acting out his uh in a pretty uh, uh acting out his, his story of that that uh, rapunzel except not rapunzel rapunzel who becomes an apple farmer and uh decides that i guess okay sure they, they I guess they can stay here and starts coming back uh slowly once a week uh, bringing the two the pair apples and other food um and begins to look forward to this and he begins to live a life which is mostly based around just getting things ready for them and um that continues that that's basically his life up until the point where he kind of has this epiphany uh where he he first of all he loses all his fear and this is a very strange sensation for him uh this is fear has been a millstone around his neck his entire life but with that loss of fear he also loses kind of a sense of wonder about the world uh and his life is much more boring much more straightforward it's really just about getting the nicest choicest apples for vaska and uh and Antia. He decides he's going to uh, make Hoffman's dream happen before Hoffman uh, dies, is killed, however you want to term it. Uh, he'd wanted to put together a children's home, the Third International Children's Home or something like that. Baca has no idea what the Third International is or exactly who it is, as it said in the book. But that's what Hoffman wanted. So he tries building that and spends many months on this project before one day seeing some people out in the river, slipping, falling, <laughs> and almost drowning in the Volga, having some interesting uh, visions as he does before he's pulled out by our old friend Kaisar, uh, the um, man who had taken him to this homestead many, many years ago. Um, and then from there, we uh, Kaiser asks him if he's ready, and he says, I am ready. And it turns out what he's getting ready for is going to a labor camp. Uh, as it said in the epilogue, he is sentenced. I forget exactly what his sentence is, but he goes to sent to a labor camp out in Siberia. He dies there seven years later. Antia is eventually deployed as an NKVD uh, administration op, uh, office worker, loses a leg to an accident, settles down in a nowhere town, Vaska. I feel like I'm recapping the end of a 1970s movie. Vaska tries to <laughs> graduates as a, <laughs> as a as a specialist in German, gets sent to the front lines, and then finds uh, spends a couple of years trying to find um, Bach, which at this point Bach has already died, before eventually finding Antia almost by accident, and the two marry and settle down, um, and we don't hear too much about their lives after that word. Uh, very that's that ending is like a a page (laughs) it's very brief (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah, it is yes that's that is a volga tale that is volga i cut out all the parts with stalin so uh, that is a volga tale not the volga sorry yes that's right it's a it's one of many volga tales as as the when when bach falls into the river you, you realize that there are many stories here but anyway before we talk about it before we get into it um how about we take a quick break matt yeah, I, I, th- I think we 
<laughs> I think I should pull up my script so we can do that. <laughs> it, it is a good time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. Uh-huh. Well, this episode is brought to you by our listeners. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slavaclippod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all the secondary sources mentioned. In this case, I don't think there are any. I don't know if anyone's really written that much about this book. It's pretty new. Considering it just came out, my guess is no. But we do have notes. Mm-hmm. Good notes. Great good. notes. Good notes. Great. Perhaps the best notes anyone's ever seen. If you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend any of your hard-earned... I don't know what we have from this part Apples? of the book. Your hard-earned uh, apple harvest. There you go. You can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, comments, want to appear on our Office Hours podcast? Drop us a line. You can reach our voicemail at 209 800 or you can also email us a voice recording or text question at slaviclippod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to address it. All right, back to, I was going to say staffing the NKVD, but, uh, well, you know, back to drowning in the Volga. Right, right. Okay, so I, I feel like we covered a very short period in the first in the first two parts, and then the second three, second three parts were like, all right, let's cover an entire life. Yeah. It sure does, right. doesn't it? <laughs> so, is there anywhere in particular you want to start with this? Yes, I have multiple gripes I like to discuss. All right, with. let's let's talk about them. Let's lay them out. So, here is one gripe that I have that I it kind of is fine. I know you said you kind of liked it last time, but I, the more I read it, the more it reveals a sort of issue that I have with the narration as a whole, and that is I don't like how Bach says the names of the years. Like he's a he's a school teacher. He's relatively well educated compared to everybody in the town, at least for presumably a large portion of the novel. So, so why, why have the names of the years be like the year of the big lie, which he wouldn't even have the conceptual scope to know about <laughs> because he lives in an untouched homestead in the middle of nowhere? I I get that. The point is to be sort of that time, you know, isn't exactly broken year by year. But I don't know. Isn't it kind of reductive to say each year is one thing and nothing else? Yeah, but I feel like that's also kind of the whole... I see where you're coming from, and I, I especially the big lie part, yeah, especially that one. <laughs> okay, the big one's... lie got me only because it has a certain, like, you know, in our context, a certain meaning. Right, but... yeah, but also, yeah, you're right that he wouldn't have the context to know that. But in, in a broader context, I think that... The fairy tale logic reduces a lot of stuff in the same way that I think we'll discuss later. Vasca uh, identifies that every person has like an essential character trait and that everything else in that person flows from that. Um, I think at least in a Volga tale, there is something there. Each year is defined by one event, by one thing. It's the thing from which everything else that year flows from. Or I guess really, really it's something that flows from some essential problem, like the most obvious symptom of it. All right, that's fine. I'll accept that answer. However... I just feel like the book is kind of at war with its own, this fairy tale logic that we, that's what I mean. Like, that's what we said in the first part that we really identified that we liked. And then I feel like the book loses it as it goes through, but then it'll come back seemingly out of nowhere and it'll like plop something in there like that. And it kind of is jarring to me. Right. Like it doesn't, like it doesn't quite uh, mix with itself. You know what I mean? I don't know how to describe it better than that, but that's the kind of impression I'm left with is that there's these sort of pieces that are at odds with each other that aren't quite synthesized in a completely cohesive way. Yeah, it does bring it a little bit into stark relief, I think, your point, that the big, the year of the big lies followed by the year of the big dam, <laughs> because he sees a big dam being built. Uh, <laughs> yeah, which that, is... that's exactly <laughs> what I mean. <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. I can accept your answer if it was just okay. This is what he sees. Everything kind of flows from it, but... This is what I mean by it's at, it's at odds with this sort of fairy tale logic, which is, and, and I notice this in a few parts that are really stark with it. When we're talking about Vasca, like there are a few lines I have some written down, but when you said it switches into his perspective, it does for some of it, but then also the narrator keeps jumping out over it out like over his perspective and so it switches from third person limited to third person omniscient kind of seemingly at at a whim uh and and there's a few spots that it does that and it i I can't like maybe you could say this is how fairy tales are written but i don't i don't think so um with that to me it's kind of like just pick one 
do you want to do do you want to do the large scale political I see everything or do you want to do I'm going for this sort of limited story where I'm trying to understand the world through my main characters who have a limited viewpoint mm. and that is where it kind of that that I think is why to me it feels a little bit unsynthesized and don't get me wrong I still generally liked it but you know a, a few of these things kind of got to me right I see where you're coming from yeah yeah especially but then Vasca does give us the best line in the book when he tells Bach that says you're making capitalism here you German <laughs> Judas which is probably the funniest thing written here <laughs> right. maybe the funniest line I've read in a while <laughs> especially in regards to i think that's about what is it i think it's about uh bach not giving him dinner because he's mad that uh vasca didn't clean the stove <laughs> yeah, he's, he's making him do manual labor right. um i know i see i see where you're coming from especially in regards to i think we talked about this a little before the podcast started there are some parts where i start to feel like a little yeah we, we do our own podcast for ourselves before the podcast starts we, we eventually we always have a moment where we're like oh we should just hit record we've just done the episode um yeah basically <laughs> where it it kind of falls away in interest like i feel like it's getting to your point it gets, gets away from and i don't know if i'm focusing too much on the fairy tale aspect i feel like just because i'm at the same time i was reading this i was also the same day i was editing master and margarita part three um and that also has a lot to do about fairy tales so i don't know if i was already primed to think about that but yeah, I don't know. It's like I was tracking and I was tracking these ideas, but to your point, they do feel sometimes unevenly applied. Um, applied when convenient. Yeah. I I just so this is what I mean by I don't want to be the person who's like I just wish it was different. But there was the the point where I think we are in agreement that it was really the strongest when it is the most pared down when it is just really exploring the world through Bach and through Vasca and these other characters and this sort of to me even the strongest the the strongest part the nucleus really of the second half is these quiet nights that they have in the house you know listening to the records of poetry on Bach's you know whatever uh record player that he stole from the old workers house right these were like some really beautiful passages and the sort of Me melancholic Bach just staring out at the Volga there were some really beautiful beautiful passages and then it jumps out over itself and it'll give you something that's just jarring and kind of a little not too nuanced and it just kind of slaps you right across the face as you were enjoying it yeah no I yeah I agree that's the strongest part especially so because it splashes you in the face with that cold cold <laughs> right no I agree especially because I think that has the strongest uh, tied the first half right so we've got the Udo Grimm keeping his daughter captive um, and then Bach sort of frees her but then sort of re-imprisons her and then tries to reimagine a better life for her and then obviously she dies so uh, big L on that one and then he tries yeah. to do that to his daughter he tries to recreate a freedom for his daughter but again um, it just simply fails to do so and what what happens here, I think, and this is something that's really apparent in this section, I think the best section of the book, I would agree with you, is that Vasca and Antia end up recreating. They they are the next stage of the fairy tale where Bach is like the, becomes like, I, don't, I wish I had a better frame, I had a better reference for this. He's like the Lorax here. You know, he's a character in the fairy tale who tried and failed and is now kind of like, uh, bittered and living in a tower and gives some advice to the actual protagonist. And what happens is that, uh, Vasca and Antia become the kind of successful version of Bach and Clara, where Vasca becomes the teacher. He teaches uh, Antia how to speak. Uh, he teaches her Russian um, and eventually also Kyrgyz, I, I think Bach believes. And they run away together and are successful doing so. And they, they make it away from this homestead. Uh, Bach becomes the Udo Grimm character where he starts literally locking Antia in uh, at, at when the period where Vasca leaves and she keeps trying to leave with him to go find him. Um, like they are the successful version of that fairy tale. They are the freed version. I mean, I think it's even so apparent as the first time Vasca tries to leave, he gets lost in the woods and caught in a snowstorm. And Antia's there as well, dra dragging along. And then Bach saves them. You know, um, Bach has 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 changed from this character upon whom the world is inflicted, and now it is, is you know, especially as the, whether or not you believe, you know, he actually affects the world through his fairy tales. I think certainly the thematic elements there that 
Bach has gone from this kind of meek, even though he's a relatively meek person still, he becomes like sort of the master of the fairy tale, for better or for worse. Um, he is the one who has gone from being lost in the woods to finding Vasca and Ansia and bringing them home. And it, he is the one who is also kind of holding them back. They have to break free from him eventually and before he finally accepts it. They, and we have this a nice bookend to this. I mean, maybe nice is too way strong of a phrase for it. We have a well-constructed bookend here of... Um, you know, a changing of generations, right? Because the very same things that are kind of destroying Bach's life are also what allow Vasca and Ansia to leave this, uh, the, the, you know, the children's home, the socialist republic. Um, and so I feel like you have a nice evolution here. But then you kind of like also walk away from that. And then there's a lot of parts of the book which are not about that. And I, it's harder for me to tie them into a coherent narrative, especially as you're getting to like the big political questions as we go back to Stalin's perspective. I just think that the book leaves a quite interesting question explored, or rather unexplored, and that is sort of what we make of the Soviet Union. Mm. You know, it presents, I would say, as far as modern literature goes, pretty positive portrayal, with some caveats there, of course, but... I, I think a, a generally positive depiction of the people that were representing it, like Hoffman, and you know, like you you said, how the children are able to go on to become the sort of successful variant that their parents could have never achieved, really. And I wanted a little more exploration on that, but I do understand the constraint of it is a Volga tale. It is not a tale about World War II and a tale about living somewhere else and living in the Soviet Union. That's not what this is. Uh. And, and so for that, I, I, I get it. But I, I just, I think it, it might be okay to leave this question resolved. I'm not necessarily saying that it should have been, you know, answered or it had to be explored more. But it is an interesting question for me that I would have liked a little bit more on, maybe. And I, I don't even know exactly how to, how, how to do it or where, where you even start with that. It just made me think. Right. You know, I think it's something that if I can, if I had attempt an explanation... Um, you <laughs> thank you. Thank you for permission. <laughs> I think we have this very early version, like this, this partnership between Bach and Hoffman. Uh, there's this line as Bach, as uh, Hoffman is commanding all this new construction, Hoffman or Bach is of course writing all these fairy tales, which are really interesting people. I and mean, it's not just in his own mind. Uh, people are really, they gather to hear these stories read out. He, he goes to town just to watch them read it's sort of secret satisfaction in it, them not realizing how this, you know, this, the school teacher who they don't pay attention to is in fact the one who pulls the whole town together. And uh, Bach notes, uh, he says about Hoffman, what Hoffman built was death. And into that death, Bach breathed life. And death in this case is not like the machinery of death, but rather, you know, buildings, bricks, um, just simply in the material world. And, and Bach, it breathes life into it, not because that there's nothing there, but Hoffman is simply building a structure, and the Bach is being bringing people to that structure, right? So we have sort of this um, this period of kolonizatia, I guess you could say, right? When this is when the Soviet Union is trying to build, use local culture to build this sort of socialism, um, and I think it's trying to basically be like in the early days, right? We have um, the we we had there was maybe a union here that could have created it. But then, and this gets a little, I mean, so first of all, I guess it kind of blame, places some blame at Stalin for changing policies and becoming, you know, moving away from these tractors that were produced locally and were born a pride into these other things. And then obviously the problems of the harvest coming and the, the book will allude to bigger political things that happen. Uh, of course, the collectivization led to a lot of famines for various reasons, um, you know, well, that's a whole thing. I'm not getting into litigating what exactly happened there, but I think it's an un, you know it's an unavoidable fact that famine did follow collectivization, and many people die here. Uh, the narrator alludes to the Holomador, and people are not happy, and that's what drives them to um, take action and drive Hoffman into the Volga. So we have this sort of like early hopeful Soviet Union, and then for some combination of you know policies from the top and an unwilling to change people. Um, <laughs> I guess I guess the Kula <laughs> the Kulaks the Kulak records in a certain parlance, right? Yeah. Um who are unwilling to to do this do this thing. Um and then from there onward it's the whole place is ruled by fear. You have this early days, this collaboration. Now we move away from this quarter in the Zatsia to this sort of Russified Soviet Union or what will 
move towards that. And uh, it's not, it's, I mean, it, that, that's when you move to the years of Yezhev Shina, the early years of Hitler, and people are ruled by fear. Bach notes after being away from town for a long time that everyone, like, the parents can't even look him in the eyes, these people he's known for his entire life. And um, I think that's really what really dominates it until the end. And then we kind of, like, lose it. I feel like it's harder for me to track, especially even ironically, as we spend more time in Stalin's perspective towards the end, I have a harder time tracking it, like what this means to the people, I guess, because we are looking at it from a high level. Um, until we get to the very end, when, when Bach falls into the river, he kind of reflects on what the Volga is for a while. And I, I kind of took that as, you could take it in a lot of ways, and I don't think it's meant to be taken in any single way, but one of the ways I think you could take it is sort of reflecting on as he's asking himself, what is this Volga, this place that hides so much death, this place that hides so much deception, but also contains so much beauty, contains so much mercy, um, right? Um, I almost wondered if that was the final question for the Soviet Union of what was the Soviet Union? What was this place that contains so many bodies and contains so much dream and uh, and so much so much that was washed away? That's how I approach it. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense to you. That's my attempt to answer yeah, it's a, hard, a little hard just for me because I think the, I feel like the Volga is a symbol for something more than just the Soviet Union. I think it's more. I think, but that's one thing. I think it's one question among many. True. In a book where so much is simple, the Volga is the one thing that's not that refuses to be categorized, that refuses to be an easy symbol. Sure. I, I like the Volga part actually. I think that was great. I mean, that was a great climax for the book. It, it, it really was. I I thought it was good. I I wanted more like that. That's that's all I had to say. Is I wanted more like that. It was one of those moments that I thought was was really strong in the book, and I, I wish it didn't take uh, as long as it did to get there. Yeah, but as an ending, I think it's a nice denouement. Denouement. I'm not going to do it the French way. I'm inconsistent which ones I will do the French day and which ones I won't, but... Who's to say? I don't know. I learned that term in the freshman year in high school, so I'll just assume that's the right way to say it. It probably is, but... It is. Sorry, I've heard like like in the last week, I've heard multiple podcasts or like videos use that word, but like not pronounce it. The right <laughs> <way>. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's okay. So how do you how do you how do you how do you feel about Stalin? <laughs> I feel like I've already I've given my my sort of my point on it, but uh, how do you feel about those the, those scenes? I'm curious how you how you liked them or not. You know, it was so. This is something I think I made this point to you before the podcast where. When I read it, it reads a little superfluous to me. The same kind of reaction you had that I didn't have in the first part. Uh, I think I started coming around to it mm -hmm. as we got to this point in the book. But I'm also trying to measure that with how much of this is just because you and I are deeply entrenched, not only in like Soviet history. Uh, that's something that's been an interest for both of us for a long time. But specifically, this era of history is something that's been very interesting to both of us for a long period of time. So when I read this and it feels like I don't know, understand why we're going through such a basic summarization of history, I'm trying to keep in mind also, I don't think I or and you have an average amount of knowledge. We, we exceed the average amount of knowledge in this area a little bit. So maybe for the sake, and I think all these things are necessary things to know for this period. I think it helps like bring home this wider picture. And the fact that you and I already know these things are going on maybe make those parts seem not necessary where for some audience members who are not as strong in this area it might actually be a good you know a uh, good frame of reference like talking to stalin's perspective to talk about the holomador very briefly i think it's from his or at least it's from a broader political perspective it's not from like the kind of worm's eye view of bach um like to me that seems like an obvious mm -hmm. that i mean obviously yeah that happened in this period we're in the right era we're in this period of collectivization but maybe if you're not you know, the Holomador is something that's some, I mean, I, I, in certain areas, of course, everyone knows about it, but also, you know, you talk to the average, average person, they may not necessarily know what that is. So maybe that is necessary knowledge, a necessary addition. And I just don't know if I have the ability to check my own knowledge to know how I feel about it almost. We're too powerful, <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah, you could all, yeah, you could see, you could also phrase it that way. I thought for me, I think. I compared it a little bit to Grossman because of the fact that he does that a lot in when we were reading Stalingrad and I can't remember Life and Fate. Spent, I can't remember which is which. It's been so long. Right. Uh, unfortunately, we're doing our Life and Fate read along next year, so that'll be good for us. But he does a, a good job of psychologizing the two, mm. I think. And I, I feel like I kind of lack some of that psychology here with the exception of maybe a few short scenes. Uh, and I, I wonder if I should 
you, you know, I wonder if they, they could have been shortened or what, what, <laughs> could have just been different. I don't know. Yeah. And I see the attempt, right? I mean, we talked about at the top of the episode, Stalin and, and, the, and, and Hitler playing pool together as sort of this metaphor for World War II uh, and they're trash talking each other. And it's, it's like, I don't know, maybe I need to read it again. Maybe I need to take another look at it. But I wasn't, I had trouble taking it seriously. But then you also get to the end of the book, right? As before, like these characters who have so much potential in their life are kind of cut down in their own way. And you have Stalin, um, you know, out and he's like watching some dogs fight and then they attacking him for his guards, like end up gunning this group of dogs down. You know, maybe not the most subtle metaphor, but I thought that that I thought that was if we're going to go by fairy tale logic, right? This relationship of like a leader to a people. I thought that works. That's like a nice little that's a nice little metaphor. That's yep. a crea- That's good creation here. Not my favorite, but I I got it. I got that one. That one was OK. Yeah. Is it the most subtle? No, but it, it works. It, I mean, it works in the narrative. You know, I'm fine with it. You know, if if it was all if it had only been that, I'd be like, okay, sure. Like, yeah, before they before he before Bach gets sent to the to prison camps. Yeah, okay. But right before that, also you have them playing pool, and I don't know what to make of that one. So, I like I don't want to make yeah. it sound like I think both of us really enjoyed this book. Um, maybe some parts more than others. I mean, there are parts where like when we get to Vasca and this relationship of these three inflicting themselves on each other for better or worse, like I was gripped in the same way I was gripped by Zuleika. Like, like for, for a lot of this book, you know, when we read 600 pages, we had to kind of skim some parts and some parts it's easier to like go through and be like, okay, I can go pretty fast with this. But then like with Vasca and Ansia and Bach, I couldn't feel I could do that at all. I mean, I could read it at a quick pace, but I felt like I needed to slow down and enjoy that. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't necessarily true for all of the book is the, I guess, the problem. Yeah, it was a, a bit uneven for me. Yeah. What I did like was I, I liked the end and I liked the, the sort of epilogue. I liked the quickness and how brisk everything was as it ended, as as it kind of wound down. And, and, I, and I wonder if it it couldn't have, that sort of style couldn't have replaced the parts of the book that I thought dragged a bit. Right. And I think that may have been a more natural pairing to go with uh, sort of exploring the the psychology and the effect of what it was like living during that time at a place that was sort of remote. And, you know, for a little bit they were trying to win over and then they were trying to, uh, you know, eradicate or you know move out of that region. And, and so it's an, an interesting story that I, I wish that all the pages that were in the book were really just dedicated to that story um like you said some of them sort of felt superfluous the the large-scale things um I, I guess i felt like so when i was reading grossman i really liked this dynamics between mussolini and hitler where mussolini sort of feels like uh this has this just inferiority complex because hitler's doing so much better he's he's so much more successful than he is and he's like oh no this is this was my idea <laughs> uh and it creates just such a uh a, f- a funny kind of comical conflict between the two as the book goes on and that sort of the, the conflict just didn't i didn't get what the conflict was for those political scenes you know like i get i get it's world war ii i understand that but i didn't i, I didn't f- just feel the level of conflict that was present in the rest of the book and i and i wish i could have just stayed in that in, in that part of the book you know what i mean yeah, I mean, I feel like we kind of talked about it. I feel like the relationship between Hoffman and the people and their reaction to the wider, you know, events of Soviet policy, I feel like that did, in terms of trying to understand policy on people, that did a, a really good job of it in a way that kind of looking at the top down didn't as much, right? Especially to your point of maybe, I don't know, it's like, it's trying to roughly track this fairy tale logic. I mean, you know, the war is not the war, the war is a game of pool, but... Yeah, I just don't know if it worked in all parts. I don't think so, but uh, that's just me. Maybe someone else will read it and, and find something that I'm I've very seriously overlooked. I would I would love to hear that if that's the case. But that ending again, I want to come back to it for a second, just because it's you know it's not just Bach falling in and having a thought. It's like Bach falling in and he finds that he's not drowning. He's in fact just walking along the riverbed. And he finds all these things that have been lost. He finds. Um, you know, he finds Udo Grimm and he finds Tilda 
uh, floating there, almost as if they'd never been gone at all, without any rotting, without any decay. He sees Hoffman floating through. He sees one of those lost dwarf tractors, and he, he sees all these lost items until he looks down and realizes the whole bed of the Volga River is covered in people. You know, Kyrgyz people, Russian people, Germans, right? Like the whole history of the region of people who have died or gone missing or simply left the fairy tale. Uh, and I think this, like, this is a great climax. You've got all these, this, these things which are not quite gone, and they seem to have exited the narrative, but they were always there. They're always right in front of him um, in sort of a historical memory. Um, for better or for worse, and it's only now, right, that he's finally seeing it, and he kind of he like wants to scream, seeing all these bodies at the bottom, all these bones, all this, all these eras, right? And he and he asks himself, was it possible that he lived all these years not knowing that the people above on both sides of the river also lived not knowing that they drank its water, swam in it, christened their children in it, and washed their linens, not knowing? And I thought that was such a powerful part. I mean. You know, I, I guess I've already played my hand that I read that as like the continuation of a relationship to the Soviet Union, you know, that all these, you know, because it possibly did not know these things, these things about our own society. But again, to Matt's point, I don't think it should be reduced to only that, um, that the history of this powerful river, which cares not for the individual, hides so much history created by people. And you take it in a couple different directions there. But at the same time, you know, he's wondering about all these cruelties, all this deception, but also the flip sides of all this thing. And it, it eventually concludes that he is not in a place to answer it. And he decides to give in to the Volga and he lies down and prepares to become part of it in the same way that all these other people have disappeared and become part of it before Kaiser pulls him out uh, and sends him to a labor camp. Um, yeah, I mean, he can't he's kind of powerless to move against it. I think there's a few points where he tries, but he's only able to move as the Volga demands basically he's uh, subject to the laws of history it's a you know we got we've been our tolstoy history is made by people and now here we have the opposite which is that there's some force of history maybe the force of the land maybe the force of the society they live in maybe something else that pushes them history is made by large rivers <laughs> i think that's the lesson to take <laughs> away here the most powerful river is the most well i mean you know, not not true that the more the most powerful rivers have, have made have uh, created history in their own right Yep, yep. Well, there's also this this sort of interesting point on the river because the the river is uh, definitely a philosophical symbol for a, a lot of people and and in the Soviet Union too, right? The the idea that you know you can never step into the same river twice is uh, sort of the <laughs> in many ways the sort of philosophical, almost dialectical sort of way that the Soviet Union thought of itself as moving, which is just perpetually forward but here you get this sort of baggage that can't be uh sort of unentwined from uh its own history right and so it's 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 not stopping it from moving but it's always there it is the same river that you're stepping into and the top part of it might be moving but the bottom part is still there and it's always there and maybe one day it catches up to it i guess is what you could say and, and it does but it's kind of an interesting. I, I don't know. I I still wanted more Volga. I want I wanted the the Volga to have more of a tale to tell. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I no, I, I I agree with you there. But man, this also I just man, this is such a powerful wrap up. It almost reads as we're talking about it. It's almost like a rejoinder. I don't think it's intended to be such, but from my own perspective, almost a rejoinder to the end of Cement or to the, like you know in Cement. The idea, at least one of the ideas put forth by the novel. I know I'm going way off into the uh, left field here is that That's we have cool. these characters who are kind of, they all know they're doing not the best thing. You know, they know that they're, you know, we've just ejected the most ardent communists from the party, but they weren't realistic enough. So they were in a drag all our morale down. And kind of one of the ideas it puts forth is, uh, we hope we can build a society which one day uh, will produce such fruit that our children will forgive us for what we did in order to build it. So we are they like cement again cement cast. It's a more interesting book than you think. If you haven't listened to episodes on it, you should. It is an interesting book. It 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 has a lot to and not even interestingly perspective on the Soviet Union for such an important book in the in the country. But it does kind of have this this logic of maybe we can 
maybe we can one day forget what we had to do to build this great society. And this almost reads as a rejoinder to me that, uh, well, the society will be built on the foundations you build it on. Maybe on the top you can look away and not see it and, and you know, it will, you assume it will wash it away, but the foundations are still there and they will always be there. Right. Now, speaking on this sort of ambiguity, this part that I, I didn't really end up knowing, I felt like by the end, was box kid was this his kid i know it doesn't really matter for the for like the narrative but there's two really conflicting right. lines in the book about it where where he says oh and then i remembered that it's not my kid but then there there was the part earlier where he looks into the bucket of water and he's like all i could see all i could recognize was my daughter's face and mine and i was like uh, okay did you did you figure this out i yeah, I actually I noted those same lines. I just I don't know what to think about that one. It could just be okay. if I had to give it if I had to give it an explanation from the line of the logic of the book as I understand it, Bach is a very fearful person. He's a very uneven person. He's always going back and forth. You know, he tries to flee the homestead, okay. he comes back, you know, multiple times and maybe it's just that he just even though he kinda knows he doesn't know know and it's just him his anxieties building up and, and coming out would be my best explanation other than that i okay don't understand the conflict he's like because there's at least one more line i think that kind of his or he's like oh she is my daughter mm -hmm. but you know also he's thinking she's not so i don't i don't know what to work with that what to do with that yeah okay well i'll allow it <laughs> i'll allow it but i i don't know he's he's an interesting character that he where he ends up building the sort of you know children's home it, it just i thought it was a really interesting sequence right for for all the positives that you you may see and you know the fact that it gives his daughter a, a life that's not seclusion in the middle of nowhere not knowing how to speak uh, i guess that's not a very high bar but we'll we'll allow it to stand there for a little bit the, the fact that perhaps nobody is is screwed over more than bach in the narrative granted it is his narrative but uh he's, he's definitely hurt pretty bad by the russians throughout this and the, the fact that he ends up dedicating this to Hoffman and, and building this was interesting. I, I mean, the fact that everything that happens with Clara and then the fact that, you know, his daughter ends up not even speaking his own language. I mean, what a painful thing to you watch happen, basically. Um, it's terrible. It's good, but it's also terrible from his perspective, right? Yeah, that's actually that's something that really I forgot about until now, but thank you for bringing it up where we kind of have, you know, of course, this is dedicated to, you know, Yakina's own, was it grandfather, great-grandfather, teacher of German, um, or German school teacher, a village school master of German. Um, it's so interesting how we have these characters, like, in a way, become not only Soviet, but become Russian, right? Because by the end of the book, Antia is she grows up not speaking a language um and so vaska teaches her russian and that helps her when she goes to school bachman doesn't even understand her at this point anymore um and vaska himself too not russian but for the sake of integrating into the society takes on you know vaska by them and eventually takes on the last name i forget the last name he takes on but it is a russian last name and he becomes something by the end of the book his name is like vasily you know something or other and, uh, you know, their own languages are kind of lost in favor of, you know, the sort of this, well, they've, they've become, I guess maybe by the, you know, they've, they've become the generations to come, you know, Yakina Guzel being a, um, a Russian, Russian language author. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I don't know. It, it was, it was, it was good. This last part. I liked this part too, about uh, my last part. I didn't want to talk about just on things that I liked because I started, I started <laughs> getting negative. I didn't want it to end negative on you know, the part of Bach, instead of sanding down the parts of the room where Clara had been practiced, where she had been practicing writing her lines of, of poetry and German and everything, where she had been carving them into the wall because she didn't have pencil and paper to practice with. And he had been leaving that there and using it for inspiration in his poetry, but he couldn't bring himself to actually sand it down. So instead he goes and he paints it over because, as he says, it's less painful to sort of paint over knowing that what was there is still there underneath the surface. I thought that was a really nice part as well, that they're still always kind of preserved beneath, as as we've said, kind of like the Volga, it's still preserved there beneath this new children's home. And I thought that was one, one of the many moments that was really, really touching, really nice, and I, I wanted more of that. 
give me more of that. <laughs> give me give. More. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Yakina's writing is at its strongest when these characters are interacting. I mean, she's got such such a way of having characters inflict themselves on each other. Um, it's like it's like breathtaking to watch when when we really get into it. To end on like good notes, like this Bach and Clara, obviously Bach and Ansia, Bach, Ansia and Vasca, all these characters, even Hoffman to a degree, seeing these characters and their interactions are just, they, they, they perform so well. Yeah. I, I just, it's just a joy to read in those parts on top of having, I guess, some interesting, interesting things to look at. It is. But I feel like that's kind of all I have or everything I wanted to touch on. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, Matt. Um, since that's all we got, I have to ask you, what are we tackling next time? Well, it's a sad next time. It will be the last episode of our Master and Margarita series, as well as our last episode, our last new episode, I think, for the year, unless we decide to do a sort of fun end of the year bonus, but we'll see. It'll be our last uh, literature that we read together for the year. So we're going to be reading... Uh, where, where we left off in part three, we're going to chapter 26 through the epilogue. And we're going to be tying it all up very nicely. I hope. It hasn't been recorded yet, <laughs> but I'm sure it'll come out great. Yeah. I mean, hey, it's going to be fine. If it's not, hey, we'll edit this part out. No big deal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to help keep our show running and for exclusive access to notes containing all of the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Yes, and those are Mickey and or Mikey. Let me know what the pronunciation is. Uh, Eric, Peter, Eric again, this time with a K. Ben, Jeff, Mai, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pacrob. The music used in this episode was Daraya Kino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The links and spelling are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. Hey, 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 hey.